Good morning. Great to see you this morning. My name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're joining us online or here in person, what a delight uh, to be with you together. Would you please open your copy of scripture to Genesis chapter 1 through 11. Uh, We're going to tackle a big chunk of text. Actually, it'll be a review this morning. And I think you'll see why and how. But Genesis 1 through 11, if you didn't bring a copy uh, of scripture with you, please grab one outside. We're pretty casual around here. You can get up and you can even dance your way back there if you want. But, uh, you know, uh, but, but there's a copy there. You can take it home with you and begin to read it. I'm convinced it'll change your life. Well, earlier this week, I had an encouraging conversation with a couple of people that were trying to work out their relationship with God. And and it was really a great conversation. These people were smart. uh, They were honest. They were open to what God was doing in their lives. And yet, at one point, we began to wrestle with an ethical dilemma. And, and see, these uh, folks were in, in, involved in a practice that according to culture was perfectly acceptable, but at the same time pushed some boundaries in their relationship with God. And it was a challenging conversation, albeit a good one, because as I did my best to bring scripture to bear on their situation, I, I had to acknowledge that, that many of the things that people once considered taboo, even those that some, some defended with what used to be biblical arguments or that seemed like biblical arguments, are now seen as perfectly acceptable. Okay, let me share with you some examples. Uh, well, here's an example. For instance, society once deemed that women ought not wear pants anywhere. <laughs> that, that was a, a reality for society. Uh, I, I see lots of ladies here with pants and praise the Lord for that. That's, that's perfectly acceptable in our current culture. Now, people also uh, once considered it immoral, and you may not have known this, to, to read silently. You, you weren't to read silently. Even Augustine is quoted as defending this position. And, and so, especially if you were in bed. It, it was, yeah, somebody said this. It's, it's, they said, to read in bed is a little less than tempting God. To support, to support with the most awful danger and calamity which can affect ourselves and others. Apparently, not only was reading silently and in bed a way for the devil to sort of get a hold of your mind, but it was also a good way to fall asleep with a candle burning and start a fire. All right? It was a problem. Now, electricity was once immoral to some. Uh, so was driving a car faster than, get this, 12 miles per hour, all right? Even, even coffee, even coffee was described in the early 17th century as a bitter invention of Satan, all right? Uh, and a delicious devil's drink. I've got some of it right over there, and you can't have it. It's mine. But, but uh, you know, praise the Lord for coffee, right? <laughs> Now, in the 20th century, and even today, still, some people forbid going to a movie theater, no matter what's playing. Some people forbid dancing. It's totally off limits, right? And on a more sobering note, uh, many used used to use poor application of Scripture to defend segregation in the 1960s. They even used it to defend slavery. And it wasn't until 1967 that that interracial marriage became constitutionally protected. And see, church, it's true, ethics often change depending on our cultural paradigms, okay? And that makes it tough to discern right and wrong as followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, what does God actually desire of us? Is it to avoid movies and and dancing or if you're a woman to wear, wear pants instead of a dress, right? Or is there more to it than that? And see, I'm convinced that in our current cultural moment, we have a fear that that sort of capitalizes on this dynamic. It's the fear of what many would say of being caught on the wrong side of history. Because clearly, those quote-unquote believers from the 1960s who, who argued for ongoing segregation were on the wrong side of history. Clearly, those German theologians who who sided with the Nazis rather than defending the veracity and and verity of Scripture uh, were clearly on the wrong side of history. 
Clearly, those those colonial Americans who justified atrocities and abuse of Native Americans were on the wrong side of history. And that's sobering in today's cultural moment, in today's culture wars. I mean, which side of history are you going to be on when it comes to things like abortion or or gender and sexual ethics or racism or women's rights or, or the environment or any other plethora of issues that our society is dealing with and deems important? And the argument goes that that if Christians were on the wrong side of history during the civil rights movement, not all Christians, mind you, but if some were, and and, and it's it's lumped in as all, what, what, what makes us think that they're not on the wrong side of history on all of these other issues as well? And so we wrestle. How do we discern these things? Which side of history is, in fact, the right side? And how does the necessary progression away from from some of these erroneous values, once claimed to be biblical, now cause us to rethink our current issues, the things we're currently dealing with? In other words, how do we discern right and wrong? How do we discern what's really important in this grand cosmic design, this grand cosmic scheme in which we find ourselves? And friends, here's the thing. In an era where many of us pine for the good old days, and we've said this before in our series, when many of us pine for a life that was simpler, I'm afraid that when we attempt to go back to the way things were, it's not that we're looking in the wrong direction. It's not that we're looking in the wrong location. It's just we're not going back far enough. See, there is a right side of history. It's just not the one that our current society often credits as such. And that's why we've taken up this conversation in the book of Genesis here this summer. And so if you've missed the whole sermon series, praise God, we're going to do the whole thing again right now in this moment, all right? So you're going to catch on to it. No, we're not, but we're going to summarize it, and maybe it'll whet your appetite. You can go back to listen to it. Maybe not, but you'll catch the gist of where we've been. I think this is so important. I want to put a punctuation mark on it here together this morning. See, to, dis- to, to, to discern God's present desires for us and to appreciate and to trust where God is leading us in the future. I love that song that, that alluded to that earlier. We, we've realized something. See, we need to look beyond our current cultural moment. We need to look, in fact, back in history, way back, all the way back to the very beginning and even before. And see, I'm convinced that the rest of Scripture hinges on what happens in Genesis 1 through 11. And then if we don't get the beginning right, we don't get anything right. And so in broad strokes this morning, I want us to rehearse and review and again punctuate this narrative because it's so important. This is the story of the beginning. Thus, it's our story. It's your and my story. Friends, this is the right side of history. This is the history that God has revealed in his word, always has been and always will be. This is the history on which we stand. And so we read Genesis 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now church, do you remember who's writing the book of Genesis? Moses, you got it, right on, good job. And see, it's Moses, Israel's prophet, who's who's leading them out of slavery and in Egypt and into the promised land. But remember, this is a journey fraught with danger. There are pagan cultures everywhere that that compete for the imagination and the hearts of God's people. And the temptation is to look around at these surrounding cultures with with all of their idolatry and with all of their uh, sensuous and provocative practice of their pagan rituals and to become captured with a narrative other than God's. 
And so as Moses writes to warn these people, he he roots them in creation history. And more than that, he roots them, them in the history of God, who God is. This is the one and eternal and true God, the designer, the creator of all things. And see, Moses' argument is that if there is one God who pre-exists all things as the creator, then in order to experience the blessings of God, one must align themselves with the design of God. One must participate in God's design to experience God's blessing. And so again, in the beginning, Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth. (laughs) Friends, God has always existed. God's always been And out of his sovereign and eternal goodness, he delights to to create a cosmos, a universe, whereby he would dwell with his creation, where God would express his Trinitarian love to to a people who are made in his image and for his glory. And so in six days, as God creates the heavens and the earth, as he brings order from chaos, as he brings light from dark, as he creates color from blackness, he displays his glory with ever-increasing profundity. And each day when God creates, he muses and he says, you know what? I like this. This is good. I'm happy with what I've created. This reflects my beauty and my glory and my bounty. And at the end of the sixth day in Genesis 1.31, Moses writes and he says, And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, you may remember that it wasn't until God created humanity that he said, this is very good. (laughs) Each day before God creates Adam and Eve, he says, this is good. But when God creates humanity, he says, this is very good. Why does he do that? Well, church, remember that God made us alive by his breath. We just sang about it. It's his breath in our lungs. God made us alive by his breath and according to a very specific design, a very specific purpose. God made us unique from the plants and from the animals because the text says that God created us in his image. In fact, in Genesis 2-7, it says that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Church, God breathed his breath. God God breathed his life into us. It's amazing. He doesn't do that for any other part of creation. And and by so doing, he makes us living creatures with a nefesh, with a soul that continues to exist even when our bodies don't. Friends, God makes us alive by his breath. But not just that. He doesn't just make us alive. He also makes us missional. He also makes us missional. Look at this in 126 and 27. Chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. See, friends, to be created in God's image means to be created as God's representative. As God's representative. We're created to represent God to the cosmos, to the universe. (laughs) An image in the original language uh, was a word used to represent someone else, something else. And friends, God uh, God created us 
to represent him to the universe. Hence, we have a missional responsibility to bear his image, to represent his image as men and women, male and female, according to his design. (laughs) Church, God has crafted us just as he meant to, uniquely, powerfully, beautifully. And our privilege and our responsibility, as we often say around here, is to represent Jesus, to represent the glory of God to the world around us. But how do we do that? Well, chapter 2, verses 1 and 3 give us some strong indicators. Listen to this. Three verses, the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Church, God created the cosmos as his resting place, as his place of residence. On the seventh day, God God rested in what he had created. And, And what we discovered when we studied this text several weeks ago is that this means that God created the cosmos, the universe, as his temple. As the place where he invites us to experience him. We're invited into the temple to rest with him under his authority. Church, God designed us to revere him within his temple. Within his cosmos. And so when we sing, like we sang earlier in our service today, when we worship God, when we join with David in places like Psalm 8, 3, and 4, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And, and verse 9, O Lord, our, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When, when we respond to God in this way, we participate with God according to his design. We participate with God in his temple, in his cosmos, as worshipers. And that's beautiful. And that's good. Church, you didn't know that we were reflecting Eden when we were singing together earlier, right? Uh, some people, this is just an aside. Sometimes we, we, some people, depending on how you're wired, think, well, the worship, the songs are just a warm-up for the sermon. Friends, that's not the way it is here. We participate in worship in response to the glory of God. And it's essential that we, 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 we revere God in his temple as he's designed us. And when we do that, we remind ourselves of how God created us originally and where God is leading us in the future. I love singing with the Cornerstone family. Praise God. Church, our worship includes, that said, more than just expressions like this psalm. See, worship is is part revering God according to the Psalms, but it's also working for God. See, God put Adam and Eve in the garden in order to work the garden, in order to keep the garden. And and as we observe that the, the Hebrew word for work is also the Hebrew word for worship, we understand that to revere God is to work according to his design. And that too is good. And so our our worship is not limited to what we do here on Sundays. Our worship continues with our work Monday through Saturday. And and so in particular, God gave humanity this mandate in verse 28. It says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God says to Adam and Eve, look, I want you to expand the cosmos. I want you to expand within it. 
I want you to multiply. I want you to fill the earth. And I want you to exercise dominion over it. I want you to be my agent in the cosmos, in the universe. I want you to rule over it as my representative. That's the work I've given you, says God. More clarity in chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Church, the good life for Adam was in participating with God in the garden. God gave him everything he needed to be successful in his work. God invited him into it. And his only requirement, look, there's a tree, Adam, in the midst of the garden. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat of any tree you want. You can have every provision you could ever think of, ever possibly long for. It's all there for you for the taking. Just don't eat of that one tree. In other words, don't don't try to assume the place of God. Don't, Don't try to assume my place, says God. Let me be your ruler, says God, your king, your provider. This is my temple. Don't look anywhere else. Don't look to yourself. I'll give you the blessing if you look to me for it. And yet, as as good as it was, Adam hadn't yet reached his full potential. (laughs) See, the first time in all creation when God saw something that wasn't good, I love this, was when Adam was standing there all by himself. Genesis (laughs) 2.18. It says, And the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I'm going to make a helper fit for him. And so here God creates this warrior helper named Eve to come to Adam's aid. She's the perfect complement to Adam. Not only for filling the earth and multiplying, but also for subduing the earth. As Adam does the work, God recognizes the need. He provides a a companion for Adam. And as Adam and Eve begin to relate to one another uh, in the image of our Trinitarian relational God, they, they, they take this robust shape that reflects the relational aspects of God in Trinitarian form. See, friends, God has always existed in Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And God's always in that existed in love. And amazingly, God designs humanity to represent Him, not only with reverence, but also with relationship. Many major world religions emphasize reverence, emphasize awe of of their God. But friends, the one true God, our Trinitarian God, emphasizes not only reverence, but also relationship. Thus, humanity has everything that it needs to experience the good life. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're in the temple. They have all the resources. They have all the provision, all the safety. God's presence is there with them. There's nothing that they want. God's provided it all. And yet, as we know, they fall woefully short. See, Adam and Eve eat from the forbidden tree. And their failure to abide by God's one test of faith, to abstain from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, triggers cataclysmic results. See, the serpent, Satan, the the fallen angel, slithers up to Eve and, and speaks the first lie. What did God say? Did God say, you shall surely die? Eve, listen. You're not going to surely die. God's holding out on you. And as Eve listens to the word of the serpent and experiences temptation, she she chooses his word over the word of her creator. And in so doing, she commits humanity's first sin. Not, Not by eating, but by disbelief. She trusts the serpent over the sovereign. 
She trusts the serpent over the sovereign in disbelief. And church, as Adam joins her disbelief, they eat the fruit and their disobedience seals their fate. They fall under the curse. And yet, as they reach for fig leaves to cover their shame, God quickly intervenes. And with a masterful intervention, he he begins the long and the slow and the arduous process of restoring Adam and Eve, of inviting them back onto the right side of history, of inviting them back into the garden. But first, through discipline, through discipline. See, as Adam and Eve stand there before God in their nakedness, fig leaves barely covering their shame, God awakens them to the severity of their rebellion. For Eve... She'd be awakened through childbearing, through pain. For Adam, he'd be awakened through, through working in toil in the ground, also in pain. And for both, they'd experience relational strife, they'd experience angst, they'd ultimately experience death, separation, not only from Eden, but also from God. See, Adam and Eve broke God's standard. They violated God's cosmos, hence God's wrath against sin is poured out. And nowhere more pointedly than over the serpent. Look, look at this. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." See, church, though sin's curse was great, God's glory was greater. And though the serpent would strike the heel of the Son of Man, the Son of Man would rise up and he would crush his head. The right side of history aligns with the resurrection glory of Jesus Christ, the one who crushes the head of the serpent. And see, friends, this, this, is, this is how God not only disciplines humanity, but also how he redeems it. See, ultimately, God's wrath, his discipline, rests not on us, praise God, but on a scapegoat, on a substitute. And just as Adam represents us in sin, so the second Adam, the new and the better Adam, so the son of man represents us in righteousness. And so as the prophet Isaiah will say, the punishment that brought us peace, the punishment that restores us to Eden was put on him. The punishment that brought us peace was upon our Savior, Jesus Christ. Church, by grace, God clothes Adam and Eve with an animal skin, costing that animal its blood, its life. And by grace, God will clothe all who turn to Jesus with the righteousness of his Son whose blood, whose life would also be required. See, church, God intervened with discipline, ultimately ultimately expressed on his son instead of us. And thus the discipline leads to redemption, to redemption. And over the next eight chapters of Genesis, and and really over the entirety of Scripture, this this pattern of God's intervening discipline and then subsequent redemption ensues. Subsequent grace ensues. You You have discipline and you have grace. Cain murders his brother. Discipline. God curses Cain. And yet, in grace, God protects him from calamity. 
Humanity descends into the depths of depravity up to Genesis 6. And and though God condemns the earth with a flood, he also saves a remnant through Noah, promising never to flood the earth in that way again. Ham uncovers his father's nakedness and forgoes the blessing. And yet in grace, God extends his blessing through Japheth and more particularly through Shem and all his descendants all the way to Abraham in Genesis 12. Now, church, I expect to pick up the Abrahamic narrative next summer, Genesis 12 through 25. But for now, I want you to listen to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Maybe this will whet your appetite. I hope it won't keep you away, all right? Listen to this. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. There's a promise. And I will bless you and make your name great. There's a promise. So that you will be a blessing. There's a promise. I will bless those who bless you. That's a promise. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. That's a promise. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What an amazing promise. Here humanity's been trying to make a name for itself, trying over and over to display its own glory, starting with Adam and Eve believing the serpent instead of the sovereign, leading all the way to Babel, where humanity tried to build up a tower such to bring God down. God says, I'm not having any of that, but what I will do is I'll raise up a prophet. His name is Abraham, and I'm going to make his name great, and through his name, I'm going to bless all the nations. Church, God makes a promise to Abraham that he intends to keep. Through you, Abraham, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And of course, we know that through Abraham comes the Hebrew people. And through the Hebrew people comes the Messiah. His name is Jesus. He's the Christ. And through Jesus, God's promise dating back all the way to Genesis 3.15, he'll bruise your heel. He'll crush your head. Through Jesus... All nations of the earth will receive the fullest blessing, those that put their faith and trust in him. And see, as Jesus gets up out of the grave, he crushes the head of the serpent. And we know, it's clear, Jesus is on the right side of history. (laughs) Jesus reverses the curse. Jesus makes our hope secure in God's promise, in God's blessing. Through Abraham, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. So church, what then is our responsibility? What's our responsibility? What do we do with what we've heard? How do we get on the right side of history? And though much of Genesis 3 through 11 is dismal, the curse happens in Genesis 3, the fall of mankind, the plunge into depravity happens in Genesis 3, and we see it outworking all the way through our whole study this summer. We also know that there have been these glorious smatterings of God's goodness in the midst of it all. And first, we find it in Enoch. If you go back to Genesis 5, look at verse 22. Here Enoch lives, and Enoch walked with God, verse 22, after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were three. 365 years, and here's the key verse, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Church, in the midst of all the generations that died under the curse, under the fall, Enoch walked with God anyway, and God blessed him for it, and he was not. God took him up into his presence. 
He functions as an example of what it looks like to walk with God in the midst of depravity. Noah does the same thing. Verse 9 of chapter 6. It says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man and blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Hence, God delivered Noah from the flood. Noah was a participant in the blessing. And then, friends, in Genesis 15, 6, Moses writes this about Abraham. And again, this will be the focus of our study, Lord willing, uh, next summer. I reserve the right to change my mind. But verse 6, Genesis 15 says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Friends, Abraham walked with God, but he took it a step further. The text unveils in a step more fully. Abraham walked with God by faith. And here's the thing, friends, our responsibility before God is, is to follow the example of Enoch and Noah and Abraham, to walk by faith, to walk with God in all things. How do we do that? How do we do that? Friends, we walk by faith when we align with God's word. See, God gives us everything we need right here. And so as we read his word and we study it, we commit together to growing according to his word. We're, we're fuller participants in his blessing. Sometimes now, always not yet, always in the future. And we pray toward that end. Friends, I, I know it's an uphill battle these days. I do. I tend to think it's always been an uphill battle. It's always been a struggle, Right? But I know that you're constantly barraged with the claim that if you don't capitulate to culture, if you don't agree that sin is simply a social construct, or, or that sexual perversion is actually progress, or that, that truth is relative to experience, then somehow you're a bigot. You're, you're a prejudicial neophyte. You're on the wrong side of history. You're just like the, those preachers who defended segregation in the 1960s. Friends, I understand the narrative. But hear me on this. If there is but one God who created the heavens and the earth, and if that one God could orchestrate history such that the head of the serpent would be crushed by the Son of Man through His glorious resurrection, demonstrating His ability to realign us with His design, then, my friends, there's only one side of history that needs your attention. It's the side of Jesus. And so my question for you this morning is, will you stand with him? Will you stand with Jesus? Dear ones, my, my heart for you, and more importantly, God's heart for you, is that you would experience God's Edenic blessing once again. <laughs> you ever thought, I'd have loved to be there in Eden, minus not having any clothes, right? That would have been great. I'd have loved to be in Eden. Guess what? If you're in Christ, that's your hope. That's what God promises. He's leading us back. I don't know about the clothes part. Okay, we'll leave that to him. Friends, we're going back to Eden because of Jesus. Are you with him? Are you standing with him? Are you trusting his design, his word, his creation? Or are you trying to make it up on your own? Are you trying to bring God down to you? Friend, are you worried about being on the wrong side of history? Good. I think you should be. But be careful which side of history you're talking about. See, I know history. I'm convinced of history. And the only side of history that matters is the side that Jesus is on. Will you join him?
Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this dear congregation. Thank you for everybody who is here perhaps for the first time this morning, for everybody who's been here all 22 years of Cornerstone's existence, uh, for, for God, everybody in between. Thank you for each life, each heart, each mind. And I know, God, that it's difficult to live out our faith in a world that seems more and more to push back, to more and more to say, that's not true. Uh, who are you to, to claim truth? And instead, to, to recreate and redesign and re-articulate a truth that feels like it's drifting further and further from who you are and what you've done. Father, remind us over and over, not just when we're gathered here on Sunday morning, but, but when we're out there on our Monday through Saturday experience, God, remind us over and over that you are the God who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. And that means, God, that you've existed since before the beginning, before time. And you're the one who writes history for your glory and for your goodness. And you, out of your goodness, out of your Trinitarian love, saw fit to demonstrate that love for us by sending your Son, our Savior, to die. And you exercised and demonstrated your ability to do just that when Jesus got up out of the grave and crushed the head of the serpent. And because of that resurrection glory, we have confidence that when Jesus says he's coming back, he's going to do it. And he's going to restore all that's broken. He's going to make it right. God, may we be aligned with Jesus. May we be participants in the blessing in all aspects of our lives. And we trust you with this in Jesus' name. Amen.